0: As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills.
1: The more muscle memory
0: that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The legends are true. But overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny.
1: Yes!
0: It's Monday, December 17th, 2018, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at Inquiring Show, and on Facebook. You can also get an ad-free version of this show by supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. One author who embodies the space where science and society collide is Robert Greene in his latest book, The Laws of Human Nature. Now, you might think, well, he's not a scientist, and he's not a sociologist, so how is it that he is able to bring all of these ideas together? Well, this book is a prolific work that includes aspects of philosophy, psychology, history, and even narrative stories. It's a really easy-to-read book, but it's also dense and very compelling, and I really enjoyed it. So it was my great pleasure to talk to Robert Greene about The Laws of Human Nature, our listeners might know Robert Greene from his previous bestselling books, including The 48 Laws of Power. So let's take a short break, and we'll be back with my interview with Robert Greene. Robert Greene, welcome to Inquiring Minds.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So you've written yet another very sort of comprehensive book about humanity. Your The bestselling book that people, most people will be familiar with is The 48 Laws of Power. And now you've written The Laws of Human Nature. Um, and, it, you know, it's so comprehensive that it makes me, first off, wonder about your process. So can you tell us a little bit about sort of how it is that you research, uh, do the research for a book or, or how how you come to um, kind of present your ideas in this way?
1: Well, I've always been kind of curious as to what it, what exactly makes us human. I know most of us walk around taking that question for granted. But ever since I was a child, I've kind of been obsessed with it to sort of look at us as if we were an animal that I'm studying from the outside and what exactly makes us tick. And so in researching that, I wanted to first sort of overcome some of my biases. And as some people could probably know from my previous book, I tend to have a somewhat negative viewpoint of human nature. I tend to see us as a bit of hypocritical that we like to present ourselves as being this enlightened rational species, but that we have lots of dark corners and skeletons in our closet. So I wanted to look at books that maybe highlighted the more positive side of human nature. And um, so I I always start a book with as open a search as possible. It's like throwing out a really wide net. So that meant reading books about our evolution, books on anthropology and archeology, span Um, A lot of books on psychology from some of the great psychoanalysts of the 20th century all the way up to present times. Reading a lot of the latest things in neuroscience, um, books on biology, books by Jared Diamond, for instance. And then I also have this sensation, um, I read a lot of literature. I was sort of, that was my major in college, and that a lot of great novelists, have sometimes the keenest perceptions of what it means to be a human. So I reread some of the classics that I really appreciate in that genre. Uh, And then, of course, I read tons of biographies as kind of a way to ground my ideas in real life stories that I use to narrate, to illustrate my ideas. And with that extremely wide net that I throw, I know I'm leaving something out, probably a lot of philosophy as well people like Schopenhauer and Nietzsche. And with that wide net, I start seeing patterns. I see, start seeing themes that kind of transcend times and culture. So, for instance, envy, which is something that we all know and probably experience in our lives, is something that you know goes back to the earliest forms of literature. It was a subject that consumed um, the Bible, stories like Joseph and his brother's or the story of, of King David and Absalom. And I found it in other cultures, the ancient Greeks, it was a, it's a terrible problem. And then I discovered in my anthropological researches that among hunter-gatherers, envy is a horrific problem that they deal with in a specific way. So, all right, there I have a theme that is universal, that really sort of nails something about human nature. And as I p- proceed in this process, I ended up finding sort of 18 major themes that became the 18 chapters of my book. Obviously, I started with more like 27 or 28. But as I go further, I kind of whittle them down and realize that's not really totally a chapter in itself. It's sort of more related to something else. This isn't a science. It's not like I can say scientifically, these are the definitive 18 elements of human nature. They overlap, etc., but this is as close as I can get to being comprehensive in my mind.
0: Yeah. So how do you make the decision to sort of group uh, two together or to, you know, kind of not talk about one of them? That I was really curious about that because, you know, it is it is very comprehensive. And and frankly, after reading your book, I can't think of ones that you've missed, but I'm sure that you have. So how do you, you know, how do you cut them?
1: Well, to give you an exa- one example, I had a chapter... Uh, that I intended to write about the emotional flightiness of humans, how capricious we are, that we tend to feel like when we have an emotion, we generally assume it's just one emotion, like love or hate or or, or whatever that is. And my idea was that this is kind of a simplification. In the course of a day, we're feeling many, many emotions. They pass by very quickly, one overlapping the other. Sometimes they're... Um, they're all kind of interrelated, and that I wanted to sort of shift our perspective and see that the people around you are much more changeable than you think. Um, But I realized I didn't have enough really juicy material on that, historically and in in all the literature. And I decided that in the end, it's kind of something that I can can, um, put inside of other chapters. So I had a chapter on what it means to be a leader, to have authority in this world. Um, And I decided that I would fold it into that chapter as an example and say that um, people are much more fickle when it comes to, to people in positions of power than you imagine. Our loyalties are very thin. We're very suspicious of people in power and we're ready to judge them and change our opinions of them dependent on their latest actions. So in that chapter, I could kind of go into some of this idea of the emotional fickleness of the human. And I could do it in other chapters. So it didn't seem weighty enough, substantial enough to hold its own as one separate chapter. And there are a few other examples as well.
0: So I was a little surprised um, a couple minutes ago when you when you were saying that you had you were looking for a more positive view of human nature because um, at first glance on the table of contents the laws are pretty negative, you know the law of irrationality, narcissism, compulsive behavior, aimlessness, conformity, you know repression, self sabotage. <laughs> I mean, so so do you think that um, you know what what sort of gives you this? Do you think we just as humans are kind of just not that Great and we have all of these things <laughs> that we push against, or um, or do you feel that you know you yeah, or, or, or is there some other, you know, finding that you've come to?
1: Well, you know, it's a major, major theme and and desire of humanity to improve ourselves. And I'm included in the self-help genre. Uh, my books usually are, and it's a huge genre. People are always looking to change their lives. And my belief is that if you really want to change yourself, you have to look at yourself and you have to look and be honest and sort of realize the negative qualities that you carry. You can't begin to alter yourself until you are honest about who you are. And so I felt the same way about the human race as a species in general, that we're not terribly honest about who we are. So some of the positive stuff that I read I've, I've incorporated at the end of each chapter, I try to say that here is a way to take this sort of negative quality, like the ones you listed, and turn it around and actually make it into something productive and human. So I begin with the premise, you might disagree with it, but that we are not really born necessarily human. We have extreme animal tendencies. We're kind of in between the animal and the human. We have consciousness, but we also have these impulses that we cannot control. And that becoming human is a task that we have. So that, for instance, the first chapter is about irrationality. And I try to make the point that we are not born rational creatures, that it is a quality we acquire by learning to understand our emotions and understand why we, are, why we have particular ideas and where they come from. And so in this process, you can begin to become rational. So it's like you have to confront the fact that you have these qualities before you can begin to change them. But what makes us human and what makes us a remarkable species and so powerful is that we have the ability to become aware of our faults and to correct them and to become something greater. Now, you know, one of the people that I read who has the sort of positive spin on humanity, is Steven Pinker, who's sort of notorious for that. You know, books like Our Better Angels and Enlightenment. And there are aspects of his books, and of those two books in particular, that I actually agree with. But, you know, I take a different tack on that. I don't think that just because of evolution, because of quote-unquote technological progress and democracy, That we are naturally somehow all kind of awakened and enlightened just because of the times that we live in. My little, you know, contention with him is that it's a struggle that each individual has to struggle to get to that point, that to take that for granted is actually a grave mistake. So I'm not sure if I'm answering your question here, but that's sort of my take.
0: Yeah, no you are. And you know, we 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 had uh, Stephen Picker on the show recently talking about enlightenment and um and I you know, a lot of our listeners I think I'm sure were nodding their heads vigorously as you were talking because uh, some of the feedback that we get is that you know, there there is this potential but just because there is this potential that doesn't mean that it is met in in all of us or even in in us all of the time. Um you know, we can we can sort of one of the things that I, I struck me kind of as an overall view from your book is that, you know, these are things we are capable of. And even if we work on them, you know, we can ha- we can have them. But if we kind of fall asleep at the wheel, we can still revert to some of these, you know, other more kind of negative aspects of, of, our, of our nature.
1: Yeah. And um, I have a chapter in the book, the chapter you mentioned on conformity. And, you know, each of my chapters is illustrated with a story. And that Chapter I illustrate with a story from the Cultural Revolution in China, and it's kind of a Lord of the Fly story where these students at a high school, because of the Cultural Revolution, are put in charge of their own school, and it kind of descends into this madness where they're killing each other, and it becomes like a, like a warfare. And the, the protagonist of the book that I read, it's an excellent book, I recommend it for everyone out there, it's called Born Red. The protagonist of this book is this kind of mild-mannered uh, young man who's interested in literature, who's very kind of gentle, a, sort of a, a family boy, and he gets swept up in this madness, and he becomes as violent as they are. And then he returns to the school a year later, after the Cultural revolution has kind of cooled down, and he looks at the school, which has been totally destroyed, bombs everywhere, the you know, Teachers have been run out and bloodshed and students buried on the schoolyards. And he's wondering, what came over me? What happened here? What was this madness that overcame us all? And my point in the chapter is that we are all prone to that. We think of ourselves as so civilized, so enlightened. But even in the United States of America, if you turn circumstances in a particular direction, if the economy starts to fall apart, if we start descending into the tribalism that we're seeing more and more of today, we are, each one of us is capable of that kind of madness. Even Steven Pinker is capable of that kind of madness. It's a latency within all of us. And I wanted to bring that out and make sure that, as you say, we don't kind of asleep go asleep at the wheel and just assume that we are these enlightened civilized creatures.
0: Yeah, so that's actually a, a theme of, of many of your books. This this idea that um, we need to be objective about our own self assessments, um, you know, and that it doesn't it doesn't help to just avoid criticism, you know. In, in the self help genre, there is a lot of kind of, well, you know, you've got you've got greatness inside of you, you just need to find find it. Whereas I feel like in in, in your books, it's sort of like, well, you've got these obstacles that you need to overcome about yourself, and the successful people are ones that can face them and then correct them. You know, is is, is that does that resonate?
1: Yes, it, it definitely resonates. Because, you know, for instance, um, you know, I have a chapter on narcissism. And, um, you know, the point of that chapter is to kind of wake you up and throw a bunch of cold water on your face. Normally, when we use the word narcissism, we very rarely refer it to ourselves. You're not going to find many people saying, I am a narcissist as they introduce themselves to you. You know, and it's usually, oh, he or she, they're a narcissist. They're the raging narcissist. We like to exclude ourselves from that quality. And I'm trying to point out That it's illogical to think that we are all born. We have all evolved from the same small group of early hominids. We are all deeply, deeply connected by the same kinds of brains. They're wired in a similar fashion. We are all human. So why would it be that only a select group of individuals among us happen to have this dark quality narcissism? Instead, it must be a tendency that we all have just as like I refer to that tendency that we all have towards possible violence or aggression. And so in my definition, all of us are self-absorbed by nature. We can't help it. And I explain the reasons for that. And that some people turn into deep narcissists because they're not able to get the kind of attention and validation that all humans need from within. They can only get it from other people, from without. So I'm trying to flip things around and make you confront yourself. Instead of always pointing fingers and saying, they're aggressive, they're irrational, they're a narcissist, they have envy. I want you to look in the mirror and admit that you have these tendencies as well. And the point isn't to make you feel depressed or to make you beat yourself up, but only by acknowledging the degree of self-absorption that is within you, can you then begin to go to the opposite quality which is a major theme of my book, which is empathy. I consider empathy the most powerful positive trait that we humans have. But it takes uh, takes the effort to develop this power, and you need to first acknowledge that your your tendency, your natural tendency, is to think of yourself and to be self absorbed. With that kind of awareness, you can then begin to work on creating that empathy that I that I've. Value so much in this book.
0: Yeah, I think that um, you know one of the things that kind of is, is even a corollary of empathy is that we, you can ha- you can have empathy in the sense that you can put yourself in someone else's shoes and know what they feel and still want to harm them. So you can still so still be psychopathic in a sense, and and so but so empathy without compassion is kind of you know something that actually can become a, a slightly evil trait. Um, we had Paul Bloom on the show a, a year ago when he wrote a book called Against Empathy, where he makes this argument that, in fact, our, our tendency towards empathy can lead us to ma- to feel as if we are doing the right thing, but, in fact, making the mar- morally wrong choice.
1: Well, okay, that's a great point, but um, I think it comes from the way people define the word empathy. So, yes, psychopaths can be kind of empathetic in the sense that they sense who you are they sense your weaknesses they kind of smell it on you and they use that for purposes of manipulation but i maintain that the empathy i'm talking about is not this intellectual quality that that the, uh, most writers the way they frame it i try and say that empathy is a vis- a visceral human quality that relates to us as as infants the way we bonded with our mothers that our earliest ancestors before the invention of language, greatly dependent on their ability to understand what other people were thinking, their moods, their emotions, that they had near kind of telepathic powers to pick up people's moods. And we have that power, but it's not this intellectual quality where I just simply place myself in the shoes of another person and imagine what they're thinking so that maybe I can use that against them. It's a visceral quality, It involves deep emotions. It involves a level of bonding and understanding that is much deeper than just the usual kind of intellectual definitions. So um, one of the people that that I felt really talks about this was Carl Jung. It's not a major theme in his books, but he and, of course, other writers who discuss, um, psychoanalysts who discuss the relationship between mother and child, go deeply into this potential feeling that we have that connects us. Freud calls it the oceanic feeling. Now I know this sounds a bit, I don't know, Pollyannish or whatever, but I believe I've felt it many times myself in dealing with other people where I overcome the tendency to sort of judge and moralize. And instead I make a tremendous effort to understand what it's like to be them, not just intellectually, but literally how it feels to be them and to feel their vulnerabilities and to feel their weaknesses and to feel why they might be behaving in a negative way, et cetera. So my definition of empathy, I can't go into it completely now and you will find it in the book, is not quite the same as how as like the author of what I might take as against empathy, although I haven't read the book, so I shouldn't really say that.
0: What do a South African female DJ, a Wall Street businessman turned mixologist, and one of the fastest men alive all have in common? They all dared to push themselves and chase their dreams and make them into their own victories. This holiday season, G.H. Mum Champagne has partnered with Vice to showcase these amazing stories of personal triumph. So pop open a bottle of G.H. Mum, Grand Cordon, get inspired and celebrate your next victory. Hey, you never know. Maybe next year, your story will be featured. Visit ghmumvictory.com. That's G-H-M-U-M-M-V-I-C-T-O-R-Y.com to see all 10 stories. Are you tired of this expense and time it takes to color your hair at the salon? Well, in 2013, Amy Errett founded Madison Reed to solve your problem. She named it after her daughter and her company is on a mission to revolutionize the way women color their hair. For a long time, women have really only had two options, outdated at-home hair color or the time and expense of a salon. So Amy created Madison Reed because she believes women deserve better than the status quo. Madison Reed is reinventing the way women color their hair by offering the quality of salon color and the convenience and affordability of at-home hair color. They also use an ammonia-free formula with ingredients that you can feel good about. You'll look like you just came from the salon, but the reality is that you had more me time to do what you really love. Experience beautiful, multi-dimensional hair color made in Italy, delivered to your door on your schedule for under $25. Join the hundreds of thousands of women who have tried and loved Madison Reed. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Madison Reed would like to honor our listeners with 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with promo code MINDS. That's code M-I-N-D-S. I I think that there is a... A sense, too, that, that there is something positive about humanity. Sometimes, you, you know, you, you, you say human as if that's a good thing, but that, you know, that, that some of these negative traits, you know, come from sort of our more animal instincts, um, and that's something that we can overcome. You know, I, th- I think that a lot of people in the U.S. at the moment, actually across the world, as we see what's happening in France and so forth, um, are feeling this big, deep division uh, between groups of individuals, that there isn't something necessarily that links humans in you know in, in their current frame of mind, but rather that there are you know that the, the tribalism is becoming um, stronger. I don't know if that's if that's objectively true, but it feels that way. You know, looking at the news, is there something that we can learn from, say, like you know, the story of Pericles that you start your book with, uh, or or another kind of. Um, time in which there was also this kind of seeming um, resurgence of tribalism, and uh, you know how it ended. Can we take lessons from that?
1: Well, it's a it's a recurrent theme in in history. Um, certainly, it comes. I think it comes in waves, and it's a continual tendency. I try in the chapter that we discussed already on conformity to explain where our tribal instincts come from. It's an incredibly human tendency to divide people into us and them and to see other people as outside anybody outside the group as inherently wrong or evil or irrational and everybody within the group to be as good and pure, et cetera. It's extremely, extremely human. But as you say, in my book, I maintain that we need to overcome this. And I try and make the point, and I'm It's my one hope that as things get worse, and they might be getting worse as we talk right now, and we all have to face the annihilation of life on this planet with global warming, which I believe is definitely a reality we are all facing, that we are charged with the ability, we humans, of overcoming this tribal tendency and realizing that we are all in this together, that there is no way to really divide races. Um, I'm reading a book right now by a, a young Palestinian. It's a book that isn't published yet. And he's talking about the mad. He grew up in Gaza and he's talking about the madness of what's going on between Jews and Palestine- Palestinians. We all know that. But he steps back and he says, my God, you know, people, when I come to the States, they think I am Jewish because I look Jewish. And Palestinians and Jews are, are related. They come from the same stock. We all come from the same stock, and it's um, it's something that I believe. At some point in the future, we either come to terms with this or we destroy ourselves. And you know, there are moments in history where we have enlightened leaders or enlightened periods where these kind of tribal tendencies definitely quiet down, and these are the golden moments in human history. So we talk about the great Periclean age, the golden age of ancient Athens, which is mostly 5th century BC. And this Athens was an incredible melting pot. We don't realize that. But that city was, it was a port city. Uh, it made its fame and its fortune by trade. It was a city of merchants. And in that city, people were coming from as far away as India, from parts of China, from certainly Asia Minor, from Egypt. And all these different cultures were blending together and creating and this incredible intermingling of ideas that kind of led to this golden age. We all think of the Renaissance in a similar way. There are other periods in history that we could point that out to. And they're not periods of this sort of intense tribalism where people kind of divide themselves into us and them. You know, I maintain that, In a healthy um, ecosphere, there's incredible diversity of species. That's what makes a healthy ecosphere. And I believe we can say the same about a culture, that a culture that allows for diversity, that allows for different voices, is one that's healthy and thriving. It's not like this monolithic thing where only one viewpoint prevails. I happen to be Jewish, and I think that that was Jews played an immense role In the creation of the culture in Europe, Um, and they were, you know, they 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 played a major role in literature and philosophy in the sciences, and this sort of openness to different cultures and ideas has always been the ideal, and is the polar opposite of tribalism. And yes, there are some enlightened leaders that we can look to who've who've preached this. Abraham Lincoln comes to mind. And one of the people I profile in the, in the book, who I think is one of the most underrated, greatest leaders in history, is Queen Elizabeth I of England, who came to a period of intense tribalism in England, an incredible bloody warfare between Catholics and Protestants in her country. She succeeded the woman known as Bloody Mary, who tried to wrench England back to Catholicism. And Elizabeth's whole idea was to unify england and to get it to overcome these tribal tendencies that were tearing it apart and i discuss in in the chapter on her how she managed to achieve that so there are certain enlightened people we can look to but in the future i think it's a reckoning that we all have to come to terms with or we're going to destroy ourselves
0: and you you know it's kind of to that point but also you know thinking about tribalism not just as something that happens between individuals who you know might have different viewpoints in certain ways, but also across generations. So I, I enjoyed your chapter on the law of generational myopia. You know, and a, and a lot of our our um, listeners will will have known and experienced the the, and a lot of them are millennials, and a lot of them feel I think that there is this kind of you know it's 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 an easy target for other generations to sort of um, you know put down millennials, and yet you know in some ways they've had a lot of struggles that they've kind of inherited. So can you tell us a little bit about um, the law of generational myopia and, and sort of ways in which um, it can be turned around?
1: Yes. Um, thank you for asking about that chapter. You're the first person to ever ask me about that chapter. So thank you. Um, yeah. The idea is that um, one of the things that make us human is that we form generations. And I try and go in and explain not just what, creates a generation, but what creates the feeling of being within a generation. It's usually defined within the time frame of 22 years or so. People who study the subject, it's not a science, but that's usually how it's framed. And in that period, there are obviously people who are closer together of age than others. So if you're in the first year of the generation or the 22nd year, you're going to, there's going to be a, quite a bit of differences. But from within that generation, you were growing up experiencing the world in a very particular manner. So I grew up myself in the 60s and um, the television shows, the kind of counterculture stuff that was happening, the music that was in the air, the Vietnam War. They all very much formed my way of looking at the world. They formed the zeitgeist for my generation. Um, Millennials grew up in an obviously very different time period. And what we notice in studying generations is that there's usually one or two kind of major events that have an important impact on shaping a generation's view of the world. So for my generation, it was Vietnam War and Watergate. For millennials, it will tend to be 9-11 and the crash of 2008. But we can also include in that technology and the invent- and the use the emergence of the smartphone and social media. And so it's very easy for me of my generation, it's a very common trait to look down on millennials to criticize them for being soft or having this quality or that quality, not realizing that um, previous generations were criticizing us for exactly the same qualities. And if you go back in history, you know, this kind of study, so the kind of study I'm going through in this book, sort of makes you realize it elevates you out of the time, the moment that we're living in, and makes you realize there's something kind of like an immense human f- social force at work that shapes us and that we're not even aware of, and that controls us. One of the earliest writings is from a Sumerian tablet in which the I know this, like nine thousand BC in which they're complaining about the young, younger generation and how they're destroying the world in much the same way that a boomer would be criticizing a millennial. So in other words, this is, this is timeless. It's always happening. And when millennials reach the middle age or 40s or 50s, they'll be criticizing the younger generation for something similar. And so I want you to be aware of this and to not have these kind of generational biases so, you know, it's, it's pointless for someone to criticize a generation. It's absolutely meaningless. Because if you grew up in that generation, if I were a millennial, I would have, I would be a different person. I would have the qualities that most millennials have. It is not something you can control. And it's not like one generation is superior to another. Each generation has its own kind of strengths and weaknesses, And they tend to go in these very interesting cycles that we see in history, where one generation will kind of create an incredible revolution of change in values and mores. The next generation tries to consolidate them. The third generation becomes kind of conservative. The fourth generation becomes kind of despairing that, that nothing is changing in the world. And the next one is the revolutionary one. Over and over and over again, these cycles continually recurring. So when you step back and look from this kind of larger macro point of view, you see these great trends in history, and it makes you much less judgmental about what's going on. And I think it's very important to kind of bridge the generational gap. This is another sort of exercise in empathy, to imagine what it might be like to be in a different generation and how different You're, you don't realize to what extent You, the listener out there, your values and your ideas, which you think are your own, actually stem from the generation that you're born into. And that if you were born 60 years earlier, you wouldn't have anything of these same ideas and values. So I just want to make people aware of these things in that chapter.
0: And I think that's, um, you know, a really healthy way of going into the holidays where, you know, people hopefully will be spending time across generations with members of their friends and family. So I want to remind our listeners that uh, Robert Greene's new book, The Laws of Human Nature, is now available at booksellers everywhere. The one thing that kind of uh, still sticks with me and, and I'm I'm still having trouble kind of reconciling is this idea that um you know we have these kind of immutable things that you know either are a product of our generation or our upbringing or evolution or what have you and it kind of puts us into this kind of fixed mindset of of sort of we just are how we are with your very kind of practical and encouraging method of telling us how we can fix these things <laughs> and solve these problems and in fact use them uh, for for the positive so I guess I just wanted to ask you about sort of what you think about you know whether and and let's 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 go with the self-help theme and say let's talk about what makes us successful in our lives whether that's you know in, in terms of having healthy relationships or you know being successful in our careers. Like, is this something that we need to constantly struggle with? Is this something that we can kind of, you know, take some of your um, kind of practical advice and implement it and then forever be changed? Like, How do do you come down on, you know, the kind of immutability of our nature?
1: Well, obviously, our nature is not immutable. It is a work in progress. And I don't want to be someone who thinks that, um, who comes down on the argument that our nature was set millions of years ago. Obviously, culture and civilization and the trends of the last several thousand years have changed us. So we are continually changing, but we tend to sink back into certain patterns of behavior. I'm talking about humanity at large. So um, I like to think of my book as being eminently practical and in some ways deeply hopeful because a lot of the stuff about improving yourself and self-help Quite honestly, in my opinion, is just bullshit. It's just trying to flatter the reader into thinking that you have greatness in you and that you can just do A, B, and C and suddenly have success and great relationships. And I don't believe that at all. It's a struggle. It takes a lot of thinking, it takes introspection and awareness. And it means becoming aware of possible flaws within you. So I believe that with that kind of awareness, You can always sort of change yourself. I have the example in one of the chapters in which I talk about attitude um, and how your attitude on life sort of affects what you get in life. And I use the story of the great writer Anton Chekhov, who grew up in the worst kind of circumstances in this really miserable little village in Russia, very poor, His father was an alcoholic. He had like eight other brothers and sisters, and they were all living in poverty. And the father had been a a slave, a serf, born to serfdom, and his parents had kind of become freed of serfdom, and so he had his own business. And he beat his Anton Chekhov every day and never really explained why he was beating him. He just said that this is going to make you a better person. And basically... Chekhov's life was miserable in this little village and he was deeply unhappy. And then at one point, his family abandons him in this village. The father goes to Moscow to be with two other sons. He's escaping from all the debts he incurred and the rest of the family joins him. But they leave Anton back alone in this village, the 16-year-old Anton, to kind of manage the, the family house and sell things. And in this time alone in the village, He kind of has this major epiphany that he writes about in his letters and in his journals in which he suddenly realizes that he doesn't have to be this miserable individual. He doesn't have to be determined by his family like his brothers are who've become alcoholics, etc. He's not going to let the same thing happen to him. And how is he going to do it? First, he's going to free himself of all of the negative emotions afflicting him. He's going to try and understand his father on a deep level, sort of the empathy I was talking about. He goes through a quick process of thinking about his father and realizing what it's like to be him and why he's become this kind of miserable creature. And as he goes through this process, this, you know, young man, maybe 17 at the time realizes that his father can't help it. This is who he is. He didn't want to have to be a businessman. He was someone who wanted to be a musician. He's unhappy and miserable, and that's why he beats me. And as he thought of this, he was sort of overwhelmed with love for his father and for his mother, and he accepted them. And he felt this incredible liberation, this freedom suddenly from all of these negative emotions that were afflicting him. And it becomes a turning point in his life. And he then goes to live in Moscow with his siblings, and he determines he's determined to change all of the family dynamic and help his brothers and sisters Get out of this miserable rut they had fallen into. I talk about this story at length here just to prove it as one example of how the awareness of what is happening to you and why you feel negatively and what's you know, beating you down gives you the opportunity to change it and to change how you look at things and how you look at the world, much like the epiphany for, for Chekhov. Each of the chapters I have with these kind of negative qualities bears the fruit, the seed within you for something immensely positive, even something as negative as envy. And envy is something that comes from a simple fact of human nature. We humans are continually comparing ourselves to other people. If you step back in the course of a day, you would be amazed if you looked inward to see how many of your thoughts and ideas and feelings stem from continually comparing yourself to what other people have and what other people are doing. It's deeply human and it can lead to something quite negative, which is what we know as envy. And I try and show how that same quality, that comparing ourselves to others, can turn into something very positive if we are practical and we apply ourselves in the sense that I can compare myself to others and use that as a spur for trying to excel and to become, I can take somebody who is, who's achieved more than me and try and reach their level I can use it to look, instead of comparing myself to people who have more, I can compare myself to people who have less and realize that I'm actually, my life isn't so bad at all and feel some sort of gratitude for what you have. On and on down the line, I talk about how this compulsion to compare has the potential to turn into something positive, but only through self-awareness and through effort.
0: Yeah, I think that that's, you know, an excellent thing for people to come Uh, To to bring as we as we go into the holidays, you know, it underscores why social media is so successful and can be so depressing if you know if, if that's constantly what you are doing is comparing yourself to this rosy picture that other people are are sending out. Um, and and from my own perspective, I have to say that you know a lot of what you're describing is what people pay thousands of dollars and do the difficult work of therapy to achieve. Um, and your book is much more enjoyable and much less expensive. So thank you. <laughs> That's good.
1: Yeah, it's it's about the price of maybe half of one session with a therapist or less
0: than that, and way more enjoyable. Oh, well, thank you, thank you. Well, yeah.
1: Well, some people find it a bit. I have some readers saying they've enjoyed it, but there's a bit. It's a bit depressing that they have to confront things about themselves that they weren't aware of. But I think, you know, a lot of us carry baggage of trying to be something and present ourselves to the world that isn't really true, that's kind of false. We try to imagine ourselves as saints, that we all have the best intentions, that we're so good. And I think that it makes us feel deep down a bit inauthentic, like we're kind of cutting off, that darker side of our nature and splitting it us off from our consciousness and, beca- and trying to pretend that we're something that we're not. And that kind of letting go of this ignorance of this willful repression of some of the, our darker qualities can actually be a very positive and liberating experience, sort of a, you know, sort of stepping into becoming more authentic at least as it was my intention.
0: Yeah, and I, I have to agree. I think the self awareness, and you know, I, th- I think that there, you know, there, there's a there's a lot of positivity in the book, in the sense that you know, there you you have these stories, and 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 you also have you know advice on how to use it. It's very clear. I mean, and I think that that's something that you know, wor- work, any kind of psychological work on yourself is hard. It's not it's not fun. <laughs> so, um, I you know, I appreciate that, and I think that ultimately, for at least for me, and I can't speak for all of our listeners, but for me, the book definitely. Um, ultimately left a positive taste rather than a depressive one. So thank you.
1: (laughs) Oh, that's nice to hear. That's good to hear. Thank you.
0: Robert Green, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Andrea. I really enjoyed it.
0: So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Charles Blyle, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer-Awald, Kyle Rahala, Joelle, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, and Sean Johnson. You can visit our website at inquiring.show. And you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds, where you can get an ad-free version of this show. Find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, your own law of human nature, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac, and our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And I'm your host this week, Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. See you next week. ever wonder what your life would be like if you took a different path? Are you doing today what you envisioned you'd be doing 10 years ago? This holiday season, GH Mum Champagne has partnered with Vice to bring you personal stories of courage, belief in your dreams and the determination to make those dreams a reality. So pop open a bottle of GH Mum Grand Cordon, get inspired and celebrate your next victory. Visit ghmumvictory.com. That's g h m u m m v i c t o r y.com to see all 10 stories. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. Sauce of destiny. Yes.